Welcome back. I'm going to ask you to make your way back to the location of your seat, but then to stand. We uh, regularly stand at Piney Ridge Church um, in honor of the reading of, of God's Word. And today I want to read the sermon text for today, Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence by deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, I pray now that you would fill my brother Nathan with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray as he proclaims your word to us that you would prepare our hearts to hear it. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin, that it would give us assurance of a relationship with you or not. And Lord, I pray that you will teach us this morning. We need you this morning. We need you to help us to behold your glory and your word and thus be transformed from one image of glory to another. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. God invites you to argue with him. That's the, uh, that's the main message that I want you to take away this morning from Psalm 17, that God invites you to argue with him. And uh, I don't know how that statement sits with you immediately when you hear it. Uh, your first impulse might be that you want to argue with that. And that might say something about your personality. Maybe you're just an argumentative person. 
Or it could be the fact that uh, you've probably had a lot of negative experiences with arguments. Maybe your, maybe your kids argue with you every time you tell them to do something. Um, maybe you had an argument with a friend, and that argument ended up destroying that relationship. Or maybe it, it feels like you and your spouse argue about everything, and you see how destructive that has been in your marriage. And so you automatically have this sort of negative um, connotation that you put with just the word argument, the idea of arguing. And so arguing with God seems uh, something that must be wrong. And, and it is true that arguments often do have uh, negative outcomes. <clears throat> But that's actually just the result of sin. There's nothing inherently wrong with making an argument. To argue simply means to give reasons for or against something. And so arguments can have negative outcomes, but they can also have positive outcomes, right? Um, I mean, think about an, an innocent person who is charged with a crime. When they go on trial, their lawyer, if they're a, worth anything, their lawyer is going to make arguments for their case, arguments that they are innocent. And if justice is done, then they will be cleared of those charges. And so there's a, a positive outcome with some arguments. And, and this is true in many, many relationships, that arguments are a necessary and healthy part of those relationships. For instance, um, those who've studied marriage have for a long time recognized that in marriages where the couples argue in a healthy way, those marriages tend to be um, better and longer lasting than marriages where couples don't argue at all. Um, healthy arguments are really a feature of all stable relationships. In a healthy society, the citizens should be able to argue with governing officials. Uh, in a healthy church, the Elders should be willing to hear and to respond to respectful arguments from members in, uh, in a friendship. A true friendship will make room for respectful, loving disagreements, right? Even in, the, in a healthy parent and child relationship, there should be opportunities for children to respectfully make arguments with their parents. Kids, remember, respectfully respectfully. And part of that respect means that you can't keep arguing perpetually. There comes a point where your parents have to use their authority and say, we're done with this argument. <clears throat> That's the end of the discussion. But there should be, parents, an opportunity for kids at times to make arguments, um, to argue their case. And so really, arguing is part of any real, deep, meaningful relationship. And in His grace, his unfathomable grace, God has brought us into a real relationship with himself through Christ, which means that God has brought us into a relationship where we can, because we're invited to by him, actually argue with God. And again, arguing doesn't have to have negative connotations. Arguing simply means to give reasons for or against something. And in Psalm 17, this is what we see. We see David giving God reasons why he should answer him. And this way of praying, this use of argument, it's not unique to this particular psalm. It's actually pretty common throughout biblical prayers. Uh, one writer has said it like this. He says, this way of praying is abundantly taught and exemplified in Scripture. Abraham, in his plea for Sodom, is the first great example of it. Moses excelled in this art. 
in many crises, interceding on behalf of the people of Israel with consummate skill, marshalling arguments as a general-in-chief marshals battalions. Elijah on Mount Carmel is another striking example of power in this special pleading. So we have many examples of this kind of praying throughout Scripture. And since one of the reasons that God has given us prayers in Scripture is to teach us how to pray, I think it's safe to, um, safe to assume that God is, through these examples, inviting us to argue with him. And this morning, if you feel like your prayer life is often dull and lifeless, if you struggle to feel as if there's actually a relationship happening with God, then I think embracing this truth that God invites us to argue with him, that can breathe new life into your prayers. But the way that we argue does matter. God doesn't respond to all arguments the same. We actually need God to teach us how he wants us to argue with him. And so in the psalm, we see David bringing five arguments forward as he makes his case to God. And we'll look at each of those in turn as we move through this psalm and see how God is instructing us in, in the way that we can argue with him in our prayers as David models it for us. And so getting into Psalm 17, um, we're going to break this down into five Five sections. The first is in verses one and two. And in those verses, God makes his appeal to God based on justice. If you look at those verses, you see that first he's arguing with God. He's saying, I'm in the right. I'm, I'm being attacked without cause. And a couple of weeks ago, when he was preaching from Psalm 35, Pastor Steve recounted the uh, history of David's struggle with King Saul. And I think it's likely that Psalm 17 was written during this period of time. It was written out of that context that Saul had, if you remember, falsely accused David of trying to overthrow him, to steal the kingdom from him. Whereas in reality, uh, God had told Saul through the prophet Samuel that God was removing the kingdom from Saul. He was giving it to David, and it was because of Saul's uh, foolish fearful, arrogant, disobedience. He had disobeyed God, and so God said, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm giving it to one who's better than you. Uh, but instead of accepting the consequences of his actions, Saul instead rebels more against God. He tries to take control of the situation, and uh, eventually, and so he attacks David and eventually gets to the point where Saul takes his army out in the, in the wilderness and he's chasing David around. David has a small band of men with him. Saul's trying to attack him. And David has, as uh, Pastor Steve showed us, reminded us a couple weeks ago, David had several opportunities to kill Saul and he, he didn't do it. He didn't take those opportunities because he was trusting in God to give him the kingdom. He said, no, Saul is is God's anointed. I'm not going to lay a hand on him. I'll let God take care of this. And he's, he's not going to take matters into his own hands. And, and yet Saul is still continuing to attack him. And I imagine David writing this psalm while hiding out in the wilderness. Saul's closing in with his army. And David cries out and says, God, save me because I'm in the right. Saul is unjustly attacking me. And David comes to God as the righteous judge, and he argues for justice in this particular case. He argues for the rightness of his cause. He says, God, vindicate me. Declare me to be in the right. 
And scripture declares over and over again that God loves justice because God is just. And right now in our culture, there's a lot of confusion about that word justice. When people say that word, they have different meanings in mind with that word. And I don't have time in the sermon to get into all of that. But I do want to say a word about justice and praying for justice. We should argue in our prayers for God to work justice for ourselves and for others. And if we want to argue effectively with God in this way, then we must search Scripture carefully to be sure that our definition of justice matches God's definition of justice. And it's challenging. It is challenging. It takes serious study of Scripture, and it takes discernment. But that challenge, the fact that it's challenging, it shouldn't stop us from praying for justice. God invites us to argue with him on the basis of what he has declared to be just. And so that's verses 1 and 2. And in verses 3 through 5, we see David arguing from integrity, that he presents himself to God as a person of integrity. So if you look at those verses, you see that he's reminding God that he's not only innocent in his actions, what he's done, but he's actually innocent even in his heart. He's not harboring sin. And so to put this kind of in our context, it's as if the judge, you know, David's approaching God as the judge, but it's as if the judge is also the investigator in the case. And so the, this judge is intimately familiar with all the details of the case. It's as if God got a search warrant to go into David's heart and to look at every room, every little nook and cranny, down in the cellar, up in the attic, and he found no incriminating evidence in David's life, even in his heart. And David makes it clear why he can argue from his integrity. And Look at verse 4. He says that this is by the word of your lips. He's talking to God, and he says, this is by the word of your lips. He's followed the Lord's instructions. He's saying, look, you can't judge me to be in the wrong because I've been walking in the path that you laid out for me. My feet haven't strayed from that path. So he's arguing that God would be unjust if God judged him to be guilty because he's just been doing the things that God told him to do through his word. It may seem, though, that David is overreaching a little bit with this argument, that he's, he's claiming more than just, you know, in this particular case, I'm not guilty. It seems almost like he's claiming to have a sinless perfection. Like he's saying, God, you need to, you need to find in this case for me because I'm, I'm, I'm sinless. But we know that David doesn't actually think that he can stand before God based only on his own righteousness for a number of reasons, but one is because he says it plainly in Psalm 143, verse 2. He says to God, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And so if he's not arguing that he is righteous in relation to God, then, then what is he really arguing here? And I think that the phrase at the beginning of verse 4, where he says, with regard to the works of man... I think that's a key phrase. David's claim isn't that he's never sinned against God, but that in relation to other people, he isn't knowingly committing any sin. That he, even in his heart, he's not harboring bitterness or envy towards Saul. 
who keeps attacking him relentlessly. And he talks about avoiding the ways of the violent. David has a band of warriors around him, but he's not out raping and pillaging the way that bands of soldiers have far too often done throughout history. He's, he's not allowing his men to do any of that. He hasn't even stolen anything from anyone in the, in the villages or homes around him to feed himself and his men. He is a man of integrity. He's committed to honoring God in his thoughts and his words and his actions. And I think this is really helpful because sometimes we have a tendency to just kind of gloss over the places in Scripture where, where God emphasizes that he relates to us in a way where our personal integrity is taken into account. We have a lot of instances, actually, in the Psalms of David arguing, like, uh, arguing with God like he does here on the basis of his own righteousness. And not knowing really what to do with that, I know for myself, for a number of years, I just kind of skim over those portions of skip Scripture. I just didn't know what to do with them, so I just kind of, you know, that's weird, but then just move on. And obviously, that's, that's a bad way to read the Old Testament, um, but you actually can't get away from that even when you move to the New Testament, these, these kinds of passages. Even for those under the New Covenant, there is still this emphasis in Scripture. We have passages like in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, which says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's a quotation from Psalm 34, but Peter is saying that, nonetheless, it applies to New Covenant Christians. And similarly, in James 5, 16, this well-known passage, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And in saying this, I think that James is indicating that the prayer of an unrighteous person doesn't have great power and that it doesn't work. And there are other passages like these in, in the New Testament. And so, you know, what should we make of these, these passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I think the clear teaching of both the Old and New Testaments is that even though we come to God only through Christ, having earned nothing from God based on our own righteousness, God still responds to our prayers in relation to our personal integrity. This means that the way that we live matters for how God responds when we pray. It means that while we don't, we don't have a perfect righteousness in relation to God apart from Jesus, yet we can and we should strive to be able to say, as David does here, with regard to the works of man, I have integrity. Meaning things like, I'm not sinning against my spouse by looking at pornography and lusting. I'm not harboring ill will, unforgiveness, or bitterness toward anyone. I'm not stealing time or resources from my employer. I'm not cheating my clients. I'm not knowingly taking advantage of anyone. And if I have wronged anyone, then I've openly confessed it. And I've done all that I can, all in my power to make that right. To be a person of integrity. If you still struggle with the idea that we 
can and should argue with God on the basis of our own integrity. Uh, maybe this illustration will help. If you imagine a, a platoon commander in the military who, who constantly disobeys orders, constantly leading his troops into situations that put his life, uh, that put the lives of his men at risk. He's just reckless and disobeys orders. Now, if that leader goes to his commanding officer and asks for more supplies, I need, I need some more, more ammo, I need bigger guns, I need the artillery, I need more vehicles, I need tanks. Well, if that officer's any good at all, what's he going to say? No, no, I'm not giving you anything because I don't want to encourage you to continue this reckless behavior. In fact, Rather than giving him more supplies, he's likely to strip all supplies from him, to, to even strip the command for him if the reckless behavior continues because it's for his own good. It's for the good of his men. It's for the good of the mission. And in the same way, God isn't going to encourage you as his child to continue down a path of sin and rebellion because God loves you. Because he knows that that path of sin is a path of destruction, that it's dangerous. And so there's a warning here. If you are knowingly harboring sin, thinking that no one knows about it, then you need to soberly recognize that God knows all. God sees all. And you need to realize that your unrepentant sin is a real hindrance to your prayers. You should confess that sin and repent of it, seeking to put your feet back on the path that God has laid out for you. And if you want God to respond favorably to your prayers, you should be eager, as David was, for God to search your heart, see if there's any sin hidden there. And if you can say, God, I, I know I'm not sinless, but I'm striving to live my life with integrity, where the inside matches the outside, where my profession matches my actions. If you invite God to shine that spotlight of the word into your heart and he finds nothing wicked there, then you can be bold to argue the way that David does here. So we must strive for this, strive constantly to put ourselves in a place where we can argue with God from our integrity. And then in verses 6 through 8, David shifts gears. He turns the focus away from himself, and he then argues based on God's promises and character. He calls upon God because he's confident that God will answer him. And why is he so confident? He says that confidently, you will answer me. And first, it's because he trusts in God's promises. And I get this from verse 7, where David appeals to the steadfast love of the Lord. That's covenant language. David isn't talking about a feeling of love that the Lord has for him. He's talking about the promise that God has made to bless and protect those that he has brought into a covenant relationship with himself. So it's almost as if he's saying, God, you have said that you will defend me, and so now I'm calling upon you to prove it. And God will, because God is always faithful to his promises. 
So David's confidence that God will keep his promise is not built on, on just wishful thinking. It's not built on a foundation of sand. It's well-founded. He's confident that God will keep his promise because he's confident of God's character. He knows from God's past actions that God is a God who saves those who take refuge in him. That he's a God who carefully protects his people as carefully as a person protects their own eye. That's what, that's what keep me as the apple of your eye means. The apple of the eye is the pupil. We protect our eyes just instinctively. He's saying, God, protect me like that. And he knows that God will. He knows that God is a God who tenderly cares for his children. Like a mother hen who protects her chicks under her wings. This is the kind of tender love that God has how does David know this? Does he, does he just imagine that this is how God is? Well, that, those phrases, the apple of your eye and the shadow of your wings, those two phrases are taken from the song of Moses, which we have recorded in Deuteronomy 32. And in that song that Moses wrote, uh, he's recounting the way that God miraculously saved uh, the, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So I think when David writes this, he's thinking back on his, his uh, nation's history, what God had done in the past. These objective historical facts of what God had done in rescuing his people. And he's thinking back on that, knowing that God's character is unchanging, that he's still a loving, faithful, almighty, rescuing God. And so he's praying confidently based on that. And brothers and sisters, God doesn't change. This promise-keeping, merciful, tender, compassionate, saving God is the same God that you and I pray to. We can pray to him confidently, arguing with God based on his own character, based on his own promises. He invites us to do that. In the next several verses, we see David arguing from desperation, from total dependence, from utter helplessness. He's, he's surrounded, he says, by enemies. And he knows these enemies, they're not merciful. They're not like God. They're not going to give him any quarter. They arrogantly boast. They're boasting that God has abandoned him. They boast of what they're going to do to David if they catch him. They're not out to make a bargain, not out to set up a peace treaty. They're not interested in taking prisoners even. And the picture that he gives is that they're not interested in taking prisoners any more than a lion is interested in taking prisoners out of a herd of antelope. They're not interested in prisoners. If they find him, they will kill him. David is outnumbered and outflanked. He's surrounded. All military strategy is useless. And so desperately he calls upon the Lord who is his only hope. If he can get out of this situation alive, it will only be because the Lord came through and there will be no glory for David or his men. They don't have any earthly hope of survival. It's going to take a miracle to get him out of this. And that's exactly what David is praying for. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love. Miraculously show your steadfast love. It's a desperate situation. And David prays to God out of that desperation. And in our most desperate situations, when there is no earthly hope, the child of God still has hope. And we see this 
And we know this because of what God has done in the past. You think about the history of the church even. In Acts 12, when Peter was put into prison, Herod um, is prepared to bring him out of prison, but only to execute him. That's the only hope that Peter has to get out of prison, is to be taken to the chopping block. There was no earthly hope for his rescue, but the scripture says earnest prayer was made to God for him by the church. And you can bet that those were prayers of desperation. Peter was one of their leaders, and he was one of their friends. And God answered those desperate prayers by sending an angel to miraculously bring Peter out of prison in the middle of the night. And no more desperate prayer was ever prayed than the prayer of Jesus from the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No situation ever looked more hopeless from a human perspective than when Jesus took his final breath and was laid in that tomb. But even after all of his followers assumed that all hope was lost, God answered that prayer by raising Jesus up out of that grave on the third day. Amen? He answered that prayer. And so if, if your marriage is desperately sick, you feel like you've tried everything, then argue with God from that desperation. Ask him to move. If your heart is dark with despair and you feel as though, I'm never going never gonna to know joy again. I'm never going to experience happiness again. Argue with God that you are depending totally upon him to give you light. If you struggle with the sin that always seems to get the upper hand and you feel like, I'm worn out with the fight. I'm just tired. Argue with God that you desperately need him to pull you out of the grasp of that sin. Even in your darkest hour, your father invites you to argue with him from that despair. And so declare to God your utter helplessness. He delights to help the helpless. He loves to act when it looks like no action will matter. He loves to rescue when it seems like rescue is impossible. He invites you to do this because it's an opportunity to show, especially in your utmost weakness, that he is strong. Argue with God out of your desperation. And lastly, in the final verses, 13 through 15, David argues his case from faith. And he does this by contrasting himself with his enemies. He says here that they are men of the world whose portion is in this life. This kind of person is devoid of faith. They're materialists. They think that the only thing that's real is what they can see and taste and touch. Their only aim in life is to get all they can and then can what they get. They are interested only in the things of this life, and they don't see that everything that they have is a gift of God's common grace. 
They don't see that God's kindness is intended to lead them to repentance. They think of themselves as self-made men. Their, their vision for a meaningful life, it goes no further than amassing as much wealth as possible and then having children to carry on their legacy. And this is part of life. And scripture doesn't shy away from this disheartening reality that wicked people do often prosper in this life. I mean, you read Job, read Psalm 73, read numerous passages in Scripture. And just like David says here in this psalm, it seems that God often pours out good things on those who least deserve them. But also, read Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that wealth and children, all that you can get in this life, all of that, the quote-unquote good life, the American dream, if you have all of that and you don't have God, it's vanity. It's a vapor. It's a mist. It's gone like that. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 8, 36, when he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. It profits nothing to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Contrast this with David in verse 15. In faith, he looks at all these wicked men who seem to be prospering and who seem to be winning at life. He stares them all boldly in the face, and he says to God, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. See, David is praying here for rescue in this life, precisely because he has faith that there is more than this life. He isn't hoping to be satisfied with his possessions or even, even with his family. He's, he's hoping with a deep, firm, biblical hope that even after this life ends, he will awake from the sleep of death and find himself in the all-satisfying, the eternally satisfying presence of God. He argues here that God should answer this prayer because he treasures God even more than he treasures this prayer being answered. He has faith that at the final judgment, those who were satisfied in this life will face eternal unsatisfaction. In fact, eternal wrath under the hand of God. But David, along with all those who faithfully look to God for their satisfaction, will find everlasting joy and pleasure in his presence. This is his argument from faith. So when, when should we argue with God? Well, it's when we can present our arguments validly, when we have a just cause as God defines justice, when we have integrity, when we're praying in accord with God's character and his promises, when we're praying out of despair, totally depending on God, and when we pray with faith. 
God invites us to argue with him in these ways. And I want to close with a testimony to this kind of praying from the life of a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with him, but some may not be. George Mueller was born in the 1800s, and he was a man who believed that we can and that we should argue with God through prayer in this way. And in fact, the great aim of George Mueller's life was to demonstrate his belief in depending upon God through prayer to others so as to stir up Christians to glorify God by depending on him through prayer. So he wanted to stir people up to pray by his own praying and depending on God. And George Mueller is best known for two things. One is his care for orphans, and the other is his dependence on God through prayer. He built five large orphan houses in his lifetime, and he cared for 10,024 orphans in his life. But again, for him, the care of orphans was actually a means to an end. His primary goal in life was to demonstrate that God could be trusted with the practical needs of life. And so, to that end, George Mueller cared for those 10,000-plus orphans without ever directly making a request for money to any person. He only asked God. He asked God, he pled with God, he argued with God, and God miraculously answered him over and over and over again. And I mentioned George Mueller here in this message, not only because he was a great man of prayer in general, but because he was known for arguing with God in prayer and because he made those arguments based on the character and promises of God found in Scripture. George Mueller was a student of Scripture. At age 71, he stated that he had read the Bible through completely over 100 times, and he went on for the next uh, 21 years of his life till he died at age 94. In those 21 years, he read the Bible four to five times a year. George Mueller loved Scripture. He was a student of Scripture. Reading it probably over 200 times in his life, he never got tired of it. He always found new treasures that he would dig up out of the Word. And in the Word, as he studied it, the Bible told him that it's in God's character to love, protect, and provide for orphans. And so... Mueller confidently argued with God to act consistently with his character, to act consistently with his promises, and to provide for the orphans under his care. And God did this over and over again. In fact, George Mueller recorded more than 50,000 specific prayers that God had answered for him. 50,000. George Mueller argued effectively with God. And I want to mention one more thing about him because it's, I think, really helpful for, argue, for understanding how we should argue with God. Uh, George Mueller asserted that he did not have the gift of faith. He said, no, I have only the grace of faith. The grace of faith, as he defined it, was the faith to believe that God would fulfill his promises. So the grace of faith 
It's the faith to believe that God will fulfill his promises. So here's the way that he distinguished between the gift of faith and the grace of faith. So I'm quoting George Mueller here. He said, for instance, the gift of faith would be needed to believe that a specific sick person should be restored again, though there is no human probability. Here's why it would take the gift of faith, he says. There is no promise to that effect. On the other hand, the grace of faith is needed to believe that the Lord will give me the necessaries of life if I first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, for there is a promise to that effect, found in Matthew 6, 33. And so on the basis of God's promises, he argued passionately with God to provide for himself and the orphans under his care. God did provide in that way. He was faithful to that promise. But when George's beloved wife, Mary, was deathly ill, even though he did pray fervently for her healing, he didn't argue with God in the same way because he knew that there was no scriptural promise that she would be healed. And in fact, she soon died of that illness. But even in this, he prayed with faith because he believed that even through death, that both he and his beloved wife would one day be raised up to see the face of their Savior. And on that day, he was confident that all the sorrows, all the struggles, all the pain of this life, that on that day, that will fade into utter insignificance, that they would both be satisfied fully and forever in the presence of God. And I pray that the Lord would grant each of us the faith to argue with him for the things that he has promised, all of them, including his promise, that he will one day raise up all of his people. All of us who are in Christ will be raised up with Christ. And on that day, all suffering will appear to be light and momentary in comparison with the weight of the eternal glory that our Lord has gone to prepare for us. And in praying this way, we're following in the footsteps of our Savior, who the writer of Hebrews tells us, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus offered up himself on the cross so that we can come to God in prayer. He earned for us God's gracious answers to our prayers. Our lives of integrity don't earn that for us. Jesus earned God's gracious answers to our prayers on the cross. And so if you aren't trusting in him, then most of the sermon, it really doesn't matter to you until you do. Because you don't have this incredible privilege of being able to argue with God because God is not your father. But you can still pray to him. You can pray to him right now, asking him to forgive you of your sins because you are trusting in Jesus, that Jesus died in your place for your sins. And so we're going to take communion here in a few minutes. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, then as others come, I ask that you not come forward. But I would urge you to pray this prayer this morning. Pray confessing your sin. Pray out of your desperation 
simple prayer, Jesus, I need you to save me. And if you are praying that this morning, or if you're unsure of where you stand with God, we would love to talk with you. I'll be down here in front. If you want to talk or you just want to pray, as others come to take communion, I would, I would love to pray with you. Pastor Steve is there in the back. I know that he would love to pray with you as well. Or fill out a connection card and just let us know um, that you'd like to talk with us, and we'd, we'd be happy to meet with you sometime this week. But for those of you who are trusting in Christ's righteousness, then today, praise and thank him for this as you come and take communion. Praise and thank him that because of his suffering, you can come to God as your father. That you're actually brought into a relationship where as a beloved child, you can bring arguments to God. The almighty creator of all things, you can argue with him. And actually, he invites you to do it. And it's only through Christ. This is an incredible, gracious privilege. And so celebrate that today. For those of you who are here, but you're not members of Piney Ridge Church, um, if your faith is in Christ and in Christ alone, and you've had that faith affirmed in a local church through baptism, then we invite you to come and to take communion when the rest of us do. The way that we take communion here is you'll exit to your left, you'll come up to one of these tables in the front. Uh, we have a gluten-free table over on my right, your left. Come to one of these tables and take a communion cup that contains a wafer. And that wafer represents the body of Christ that was broken for sin. And it contains juice. And that juice gives us a picture of the blood of Christ that was poured out for sinners. We invite you to take it back to your seat. Just go around and enter on the other end of the aisle where you came out and take it there with uh, your family or by yourself. But again, I encourage you today, take it with just gratitude, amazement, that God would invite you into this kind of relationship with him. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus. So praise Jesus as he come to his table. Why don't you go ahead and stand, and for those who should, I invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning.